0: Our presentation this morning is a continuation of a series that we've been doing called Unlocking Prophecy. I know that we have some visitors here, so I'll just give you a little bit of background. This is our 23rd presentation out of 24 uh, in the last month, and so we've been covering a lot of ground, talking a lot about the different prophecies in the Bible, especially the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and other end time prophecies. So we are now uh, on the topic of Revelation's prophetic movement at end time. And so we, um, as we get into God's word this morning, just want to invite you to bow your heads with me uh, for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much for this blessed Sabbath day that you bless us with. Lord, we thank you that we can be here together, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we open your holy word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and that we would be drawn closer to you, Lord, as we take a look at this topic, Lord, of the prophetic gift in the end time movement. Lord, we pray that you would be here with us. Guide us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you look out over the world today, men and women are searching for certainty. They're looking for assurance. They're looking for an answer, uh, some answer from beyond the sky. They're looking for some supernatural solution to their problems. As a result, there is an interest, an explosion of interest, actually, in psychic phenomenon today. People are seeking uh, for answers outside of themselves. And this search has led people down a variety of pathways. Some are searching in the area of the occult. And books on the occult have uh, been exploding in popularity. Uh, They're now selling in the multi-millions as far as copies. And it seems like there is more and more interest today in in people claiming the gift of prophecy. Some have even achieved national um, acclaim. In the 1960s, there was a lady by the name of Jean Dixon, who became a prominent figure in the Washington DC area and some social circle, circles there. In fact, her book, The Phenomenal Jean Dixon by Ruth Montgomery, sold a total of over 3 million copies since 1965. Interest in astrology columns in newspapers is also growing as well. Uh, over 2,000 newspapers throughout the United States have astrology columns that people regularly read and follow. So why all this interest in astrology and the occult? Why all this interest in prophecy? What if? Wh- why is it that people call psychic hotlines um, to talk to these psychics? Well, friends, it's because people want answers. Their lives have become fused, and they're looking for answers. They're looking for some way to touch the divine. They're seeking for some place to experience the supernatural. And that is why there are so-called channelers in this new age movement. You know, there are mediums, you can even see this on TV, I wouldn't recommend watching it, but there are these mediums that claim that they will let you talk to your dead loved ones, and this is growing in popularity. Yet Jesus warns us in the Bible, Against counterfeit prophets. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, the Bible says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So deceptions will abound in the last days. And Jesus also says this in Matthew 7 25. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, no false prophet goes around advertising with a business card that he or she is a false prophet. They don't recommend going to the website there, imadeceiver.com. They don't go around and do that, do they? Some, but, but some prophets use a variety of different things for their prophecies. Some use crystal balls. Some use tarot cards. Some use Ouija boards. Some come with their incense and with their pendants. And not one of them says... I'm a false prophet, listen to me. They all claim to be true. So Jesus says, beware of false prophets. But wait a minute, if there are false prophets, could that mean that there is also going to be true prophets, that there could be the true gift of prophecy in God's church today? Friends, would the devil counterfeit something that doesn't have any original how many, uh, how many of you have ever seen a counterfeit $3 bill? You, maybe one? <laughs> you don't see counterfeit $3 bills very often. Why is that? Because there's no genuine $3 bill in the United States of America. You don't counterfeit something that doesn't have a genuine. So if a person wants to make a counterfeit, they would make a counterfeit off of a genuine bill, like a 20, or a 50, or a 100. So what does the Bible teach about the gift of prophecy? Could it be that the reason that the devil counterfeits the gift of prophecy is because God also has a genuine gift of prophecy? Does scripture teach that there will be a manifestation of the gift of prophecy in the last days? Or does scripture teach, as many claim, that the gift of prophecy ceased at the end of Bible times? Or should the church today expect that spiritual gifts should be active in the church? If so, how can we tell the difference between Satan's counterfeits and the true? Let's go in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 today. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now friends, if Jesus is giving gifts, I want one of those gifts. How about you? I want any gift that Jesus wants to give me. So what so what were these spiritual gifts that only Christ himself could give? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 continues to explain it and describe these gifts. It says, and he, that is Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So here he lists five specific gifts that he would place in his church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Now, friends, do we need biblical teachers in, in the world today? Yes, we do. Do we need pastors and evangelists? Absolutely. Do we need apostles? Yes, I believe we do. The word apostle actually comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means one sent forth. It can also be translated a messenger or an ambassador or or a missionary. And friends, do we need ambassadors or missionaries for Jesus today? Absolutely, we do. So what about the gift of prophecy? Is this a gift that God would restore in his end time church in these last days? And how long would these gifts remain in the church? Um, the Bible says that, it's for, that the purpose of these gifts is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that is for the building up of the body of Christ. So Jesus gave these gifts to the church to strengthen the church, to help it accomplish its mission of spreading the gospel to the world around us. The church needs all these gifts to challenge the enemy head-on in these last days. But how long would these gifts remain in the church? Would they be taken away after a short period of time, after the apostles? Well, the, ne- the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, in Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, it says, "'Till we all come to the unity of the faith "'and of the knowledge of the Son of God, "'to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature "'of the fullness of Christ.'" So here we see that the spiritual gifts would actually be in the church uh, to the very end, until we come to unity of the faith, and it would help bring the church to spiritual maturity. Why? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So we see that one of those gifts that God wants to give is the gift of prophecy. And all the other gifts will also remain in the church until the church comes to maturity, until it comes to the place that the church is ready for Jesus to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says, "...so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ." So here the Bible says that the church awaiting the coming of Christ will come behind in no gift. And if you and I are looking for truth, if we're looking for God's end-time people, we need to be looking for a church that is anticipating the coming of Christ. It must be an Adventist church, that is, a church that is longing for the coming of Christ, a church that longs to see Jesus come soon. It must be a Bible-based church, a a church that bases all of its teachings off of God's word. It needs to be a grace-filled church, a Christ-centered church. We need to be following, we need to find a church that is law-abiding, that keeps the commandments of God, including the seventh-day Sabbath taught in Scripture. And we should expect and anticipate the gift of prophecy being restored to the Bible-believing group of people in the last days. Because if it doesn't have the gift of prophecy, then, then it would come behind in the gift, and the Bible says that the church waiting the coming of Jesus will come behind in no gift. So we should anticipate that Jesus is going to have uh, give his last day church the gift of prophecy. Jesus promised the gift of prophecy would be revived in the last day church. And maybe that's the reason why we're seeing an explosion in occult practices. Maybe that's the reason why we're seeing uh, the rise of the New Age movement. People are out searching for things like this. Satan is always trying to counterfeit, raise up counterfeits to God's true genuine work. But with this, there are two great dangers, friends. We can go in one ditch or the other ditch. The first danger is to accept the counterfeit, to be deceived and accept a counterfeit. Millions of people are wanting a supernatural experience in the days in which we live, and they will accept a false uh, supernatural experience. The second danger is that we're so skeptical of all of these manifestations that we reject the genuine, the genuine gift that God wants to give. So it's possible to be so cautious that, that you become afraid of any church that claims to have the gift of prophecy. It is possible to turn your back on the genuine because you don't want to be deceived by the false. So the question begs to be asked: Well, how can we tell the difference between the true prophets and between uh, true prophets and false prophets? Well, some time ago, there was a great deal of counterfeit money that was being passed around in the United States, I'm sure there's probably still a large number of that uh, happening in our country as well today, the U.S. government became concerned about it, and so they brought men and women from all over the country to Washington, D.C., and for, uh, it was for a six-week course on how to, t- how to detect counterfeit money. And they went to class for eight to ten hours a day for six weeks, and how many counterfeit counterfeit bills do you think that they examined each day? Zero. They did not examine any counterfeit bills. Instead, they studied the genuine. They studied the $5 bill. They studied the $10 bill, the 20s and 100s. They wanted to learn what the true genuine money was looking like and then they could easily detect a counterfeit. Now, why is it that the gift of prophecy was given to his church anyways what, what is the reason behind this well isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 tells us that our iniquities have separated you from your god and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear in the garden of eden god communed, communicated to adam and eve face to face the bible tells us that he walked with adam and eve in the cool of the day there was a direct contact direct communication But after sin, after Adam and Eve sinned, God could no longer communicate with them face to face. If he would, they would have been immediately consumed by his glory. Sin is combustible material in the presence of a holy God. So because God longed to share his love with them, God longed to communicate with them, he had to go a different route. And he chose in Bible times to speak through the prophets. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible says, God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So God, if he's going to do something, he's going to reveal it to the prophets. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 says, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision I speak to him in a dream." So God used two methods to communicate with these biblical prophets. Number one, an angel brought them a vision or a dream. Typically, visions were given to them while they were awake and dreams were given to them while they were sleeping. And uh, we look at the books of Daniel and Revelation, which are prophetic books, and we see throughout them that visions and dreams are given to the prophets. And the second way that God communicated with these biblical prophets was that he impressed their minds through his Holy Spirit. Uh, We see this here in second Peter Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 21: For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the apostle also says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspired the Bible writers to write what they wrote. They didn't just uh, one day sit down and say, I'm just gonna write this. They didn't just make stuff up, but God was revealing it to them and that's why we can have confidence in God's Word. Yet not all of the prophets were Bible writers. For example, if you open up your Bibles, if you could open up your Bibles to the Book of Agabus, and the first person that gets there, I will give you a prize. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Well, it's because there's no book of Agabus in the Bible, right? But Agabus was a prophet in the New Testament church. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and 28 says, And in these days, prophets came to Jerusalem, to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar, Now, was Agabus a true prophet? Yes, he was. He was a true prophet. Did the Holy Spirit impress his mind? Yes, he did. Did he make a prediction? Yes, yes, he did. Agabus' prophecies were for a specific time of crisis that the church was facing there at Jerusalem. Now, what's the difference between the Bible writers and these other true prophets? Well, because they were both inspired by God, right? They all were moved by the Holy Spirit, and God spoke to them. Well, the prophets, those, the prophets whose writings are included in the Bible have a message that is eternal in time and universal in scope. So it's for everybody. It's a message for all time and in all places. The true prophets whose writings are not included in the Bible have a message from God for the church at a particular period of time in earth's history. Probably the most famous prophet that does not have a book in the Bible would be um, John the Baptist. Uh, He was the one that, that came before Christ to help prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. Yet, he did not write a book in the Bible. But was he a prophet? Absolutely. There were also woman prophets in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Deborah was a prophetess. Huldah was also a prophetess. And in the New Testament, there were the seven daughters of Philip who were also prophetesses. Now, what are the biblical tests of a true prophet? If, if there are you know, going to be true prophets and false prophets, we need to know how to tell the difference between them. And there are at least five tests that we find in scripture to help us identify whether they are true prophets or false prophets. Number one, prophetic accuracy. The best modern psychics are accurate approximately 16% of the time. Now, oftentimes this is because they're so vague in their predictions that, you know, almost anything could, could be true 16% of the time if you're, if you're general enough, you know, like tomorrow I, I prophesy that all of you will probably eat tomorrow, and I would be right, most likely, unless you're fasting or something. <laughs> but a true prophet of God is 100% accurate all of the time jeremiah chapter 28 verse 9 tells us as for the prophet who prophesies of peace when the word of the prophet comes to pass the prophet will be known as the one whom the lord has truly sent." so what does god say he says if the prophet's prediction is accurate then you can know that they are a true prophet now There are some cases in the Bible where the prophets' uh, prophecies were conditional. Um, For instance, Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached a message for them to repent, right? And that God was going to destroy the city if they did not repent. So it was conditional on, on the condition that they would repent or not. If they didn't repent, they would be destroyed. If they repented, God would spare them. Yet Jonah was a true prophet. The second test is the test of biblical faithfulness. A true messenger of God will lead people back to the study of the Bible. True biblical prophets don't rise up and tell you what's gonna happen in the stock market. They don't rise up and tell you what's, what's gonna happen in Hollywood, who's getting divorced and who's getting remarried. That's not what the purpose of prophets is for, friends. Here is the biblical test of faithfulness found in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse one. The Bible says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear him, and keep his commandments. And obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So this text is basically saying: if the so-called prophet is not leading a person back to the word of God to be faithful to the scriptures, they are blatantly a false prophet. And, And that you should run to run away from them. Don't listen to them if they're leading you away from God's word. Thirdly, a true prophet will exalt Jesus. First John, John Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, notice it says that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. There are many out there, friends. Satan is trying to counterfeit the genuine. But God makes it plain. He doesn't want any of us to be deceived by this. And that's why he says to test the spirits, to know whether they are of God or not. False prophets will acknowledge that Christ exists, but they will deny salvation through his blood. They will say that Christ is just another one of the prophets or, or that he's not the eternal son of God. This clearly identifies them as false prophets. A true prophet always leads us back to the teachings of scripture. And it leads us back to Jesus as our only savior for humanity. The fourth test is commandment keeping. The prophets of the Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were raised up at times when God's people were breaking His commandments. And they called the people back to faithfulness to God, back to obedience. They called for a return to keeping of the commandments. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, that is, the Bible, it is because there is no light in them. If that so-called prophet is not leading you back to the Bible, if if it doesn't lead you back to obedience, they are a false prophet. Acts chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that there will be prophets who prophesy in the last day, in the plural. Uh, Acts 2.17 quotes Joel 2.28. It says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Friends, do you believe that we're in the last days? I believe that we're living in the last days. I believe Jesus is soon to come. So this applies especially to us. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall do what? They shall prophesy. Friends, God is at work in our world today. He is revealing himself to people. I've heard of stories recently where where there have been Muslims even in in closed countries where the gospel is not able to be freely shared, where they are receiving dreams and visions of God. God is working to, to reveal himself to us. And I believe that God will give dreams and visions in these last days. There's no doubt about that. Revelation also tells us that the gift of prophecy will be in God's end-time church. And we saw last night in our presentation uh, on Revelation chapter 12 that Revelation chapter 12 describes God's church and how it hid in the wilderness for 1,260 years, a very long time period during the Dark Ages, and how it would once again come out of hiding in the after 1798 and if you're interested in learning about that and you haven't been at our meetings we do have dvds available afterwards if you'd like to pick one up revelation chapter 12 verse 17 describes god's remnant church his end time movement in these words it says and the dragon who is the dragon that is satan the devil and the dragon was enraged with the woman and who is the woman?" the church, God's people, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or the King James says, the remnant of her seed, who do what? They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice two characteristics of God's last day church. Number one, they keep the commandments of God, all ten of them, and number two, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And later in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19, 10, it tells us very clearly what the testimony of Jesus is. Anytime we come across a a term or a phrase in the Bible that we don't clearly understand, it's important to look at the context and to look at the surrounding passages to figure out what that verse is talking about. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John tells us, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So God's last day church, his Bible-believing, commandment-keeping people should have the gift of prophecy. So the fifth test of a genuine prophet is the test of spiritual fruitage. The genuine gift of prophecy is given to God's church to bear spiritual fruit in the life of, of believers and in the life of that church. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns us to beware of false prophets. And in verse 20, he tells us this. He says, "Therefore, by their fruits you will know them." In other words, you can tell a true prophet from a false prophet based on the fruit of their life, based on the fruit of their ministry. The true prophet, a true prophet, will bear fruit to the glory of God, and those who, and those that follow the message of the prophet, will also bear fruit to the glory of God. If we believe that we found God's end time church, if it must have the biblical gift of prophecy, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, and also Revelation 19, 10. If it did not, it could not possibly be the true church. As we looked at last night, the true church could not be just a small little uh, non-denominational church in a particular part of the country. It has to be a global movement with a global message found in Revelation chapter 14. Now, here's the question. Has God blessed the Seventh-day Adventist Church with the gift of prophecy? If he has not, then we need to keep looking for God's end-time people. If God has not restored the gift of prophecy in his last-day church, then he would not be faithful to his own word. God promised to restore the gift of prophecy. And friends, God does not go back on his promises. Amen? His promises are true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, you can count on him. And he said that the church would come behind in no gift. And faithful to his word, God himself placed the gift of prophecy in his last day movement, his Sabbath-keeping movement in the last days. Now let me share, you, share with you a story, the story of how God chose to keep in touch with his people in these last days. During the great religious awakening in the early 19th century, there was tremendous interest in the study of the Bible and in prayer. Great revivals were taking place as a result of these Bible studies that were happening, these revival uh, meetings that were taking place, and there was a special interest in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation. And faithful Bible students from every denomination were studying God's word. like People like William Miller and Joseph Bates studied these prophecies. And eventually they came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. It became a huge movement and the word spread to every English missionary outpost in the world. As they continued to study, they finally came to the understanding that Jesus would come in the year 18. 44 and for a long time no one set a specific date but finally they agreed upon eight, October 22 1844 and that was because that was the day um, the day of atonement for that year that took place. However we know October 22 passed. Uh, we're obviously living in 2017 so their prediction as far as Christ's return was was not it did not happen. It was a most bitter disappointment for these believers. Some had dedicated so much of their time, so much of their resources. Some had sold their farms and put everything into the work of proclaiming that Jesus was coming soon. But later, after much prayer and further Bible study, the group discovered that the date was correct, but that the event was wrong, that Jesus was not to come in October 22 of 1844. What, what had happened was is that they thought that the word sanctuary, as mentioned in Daniel 8.14, uh, mentioned that the sanctuary was actually the earth and that the earth would be cleansed with fire in 1844 at the coming of Christ. However, as they continued to study, they realized that it wasn't the earth that was a sanctuary, but that, that Jesus was actually entering into the heavenly sanctuary, into the most holy place where the final judgment was was to begin. We looked at that extensively in our series and presentation number four. Excitedly, the believers began. They continued to study, and they continued to find new truths, truths that had been lost for centuries during the Dark Ages, things like the Bible Sabbath, and things like what happens when you die. And at this crucial moment, God chose to restore the gift of prophecy to his people. He chose a frail 17-year-old girl Uh, by the name of Ellen Harmon, and gave her her first vision in December of 1844, just two months after that great and bitter disappointment. She was shown the Advent people, that is, the people that, that were believing in the coming of Christ, and that they were traveling on an elevated road to heaven with a brilliant light from Jesus illuminating the pathway. This was an encouraging message to this small and scattered group of Advent believers at the time, who would later become known as Seventh-day Adventists. Young, Young Ellen soon married James White, another youthful Bible student, and for more than 70 years she spoke, she wrote, she taught, and she counseled for God. She encouraged people to follow the Lord. And although the scope of her ministry and expertise is astounding, her greatest work, as she put it, was to lead men and women to the greater light. That is the Bible. That was, that, that was the greatest purpose of her writings, was to lead people back to God's word. She wrote this in Cole Porter Ministry, page 125. She said, little heed is given to the Bible. Would you agree with that, friends? There, there are so many people that are just disregarding God's word in our day today, friends. There are people that are very critical in this. They, when the Bible says something, they don't take it as it reads, but they, they try and reason it away so she said little heat is given to the bible and the lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater lights she stated time and time again that the holy scriptures were to be the authority for all people and all believers that all doctrines should be based upon god's word To some people that were criticizing the word of God at her time, uh, she wrote this to them. She wrote a message to them. She said, Cling to your Bible as it reads, and stop your criticism in regard to its validity, and obey the word, and not one of you will be lost. Friends, does that sound like good counsel? Stop criticizing God's word, obey God's word, and not one of you will be lost. So such an important message to us today, friends, even. On November 26, 1827, she and her twin sister Elizabeth were born in the little uh, town of Gorham, Maine. My wife and I had the opportunity to visit there a few years back in a tour of Adventist history. Uh, She was born to her parents Eunice and Robert Harmon. And Ellen was the last of eight children. At the age of nine, she had an accident that changed her life forever. She was returning home from school one day and there was a girl who was basically a bully, and uh, she threw a stone and injured Ellen. The stone landed and hit Ellen White's uh, Ellen Harmon at the time uh, on her nose. And for three weeks she was unconscious, and it appeared that she would not live very much longer. Though she sh- though she's obviously survived, she was unable to continue her schooling past the third grade. Her physical suffering led her to consider her spiritual life, and eventually she came to put her faith and trust in Jesus. Ellen became an avid avid student of the Bible. She started to love to study God's word. She attended camp meetings that were going on in her area, revival meetings, and cottage meetings at the time. After attending a Methodist camp meeting in Buxton, Maine, Ellen White was baptized. She gave her life to Jesus 100% on June 26, 1842, just a few years before uh, 1844, and she became a member, a faithful member of the Methodist Church. Later, Ellen and her family attended some meetings in Portland, Maine, and the speaker was William Miller. He was a former army captain in the War of 1812 who had been diligently studying God's word. He was studying the prophecies of the Bible and believed that Christ was coming soon. Him and his followers were labeled Millerites, or Adventists, because they believed in the soon coming of Christ. The Harmon family was convinced of the truthfulness of William Miller's messages. They believed that his, his message was correct. However, after the great disappointment of October 22, 1844, Ellen White, as well as many others, were completely devastated. She wept, she prayed, she studied God's word for more answers, as did many of the Advent believers. Then it was that God called her to be a prophetess. Physically, she didn't appear what you'd expect from a prophetess. She was a 17-year-old girl. She was just young still, fighting tuberculosis, and she had a heart condition, Yet in December of 1844, God chose to speak to Ellen White in a vision. In her own words, she tells of her reaction to this vision. She said, After I had the vision and God gave me light, he bade me deliver it, but I shrank from it. I was young, and I thought they would not receive it from me. Although she felt inadequate and physically incapable of the responsibilities that God was asking of her, she finally, in faith, accepted the mission that God had for her. And Ellen White and her husband, James White, worked together in the gospel ministry, giving light to people, to pointing people to Jesus. And she writes about this in many of her books. Throughout her life, Ellen White was a committed Christian. She was a tireless servant of of god a devout mother she was loved by her husband her family as well as thousands of people around the world on on august 6 1881 ellen white's husband james white died in battle creek michigan this was heartbreaking for ellen white as as it would be for any of us if we lost our spouse But she stood by his graveside, and she pledged to keep going on, to keep laboring in the cause of God. And she continued to minister alone for for the next 35 years of her life. And during this time, some of Ellen White's most beautiful writings uh, came about after this time. And she continued the work that God had for her. Her prophetic ministry took her to several different countries. uh, And she was instructing and counseling believers and encouraging them in the Lord. And the life, the life of Ellen White in her ministry ended in July 16, 1915. She was 87 years old. She was buried at the side of her husband in the Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. And a few weeks later after her death, a newspaper shared this statement about her from the New York Independent on August 23, 1915. They said, she showed no spiritual pride and she sought no filthy lucre, no riches. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable of the American succession." This was not written by anyone in our church. This is just what the public had said about her. Yes, friends, her, her voice is stilled. Her pen is at rest. But the words and counsel and the instruction that she gave um, continue to live on. They continue to guide, to guide God's people in these last days. God gave Ellen White more than 2,000 prophetic dreams and visions. She wrote over 50 books, and she lectured on uh, to thousands of people on three different continents. And the last years of her life were spent in California. When historian George Wharton James was writing the history of California in his book, uh, California, the Romantic and and the Beautiful, he commented on this humble woman, Ellen White, on page 319. And he was not a Seventh-day Adventist. This is what he said. He said, this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, was written has written and published more books in more languages, which circulate to the greater extent than any other woman in history. She is the most widely translated uh, female author of all time. Quite remarkably, for a woman who is sick, in her early years and who only had a third grade education friends there are many people that have questions about the gift of prophecy and rightfully so we should have it's okay to have questions questions like does the prophetic gift replace the bible and do seventh-day Adventists accept the writings of ellen white on par with the bible and friends the the short answer to this is no to both the gift of prophecy does not take the place of the Bible at all, rather it exalts the Bible. She describes her own, in her own words that she is the lesser light pointing to the greater light, the Bible. Her writings exalt Jesus Christ and point people back to God's word. Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible and the Bible only as their source of every Bible doctrine. Every teaching of the Adventist church comes directly from God's word. And we believe in the entire Bible, friends, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We don't uh, throw anything out. We believe God has given it as a revelation of his will, including the portions that say that God will restore his prophetic gift in his church. If we are a Bible-believing people, we have to accept the entire Bible, including the part that says that God will restore the gift of prophecy. Even when that prophetic message might rebuke us for some cherished sin, the only thing that an honest-hearted person can do before dismissing someone who has claims that they have the gift of prophecy is to examine the individual's claims and their writings. If a person meets the biblical tests of a prophet, then we should accept them as a genuine voice, a genuine message from God. But if they don't, we ought to rule them out. We ought to not pay attention to them at all. So let's apply these prophetic tests to Ellen White's writings. How does Ellen White line up to those five biblical tests? Let's look at them here briefly. What about prophetic accuracy? What areas did Ellen White write in, and were those areas accurate? Well, one of the subjects that she often wrote on was the topic of health. She wrote numerous books on health. Back in the 1800s, when she lived and wrote, people had no idea that sugar and fat contributed, contributed to coronary heart disease. They did not have that kind of knowledge back then. And Ellen White wrote about a diet uh, of whole, grooms, whole, whole grains, sorry, fruits, nuts, and vegetables. And scientific research has now concluded that a diet that is rich in these things helps to prevent cancer. Um, Clive McKay of Cornell University said, this woman is 100 years ahead of her time in the area of diets. Back in the 1800s, Ellen White wrote this in her book, Ministry of Healing. Tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Now, when she wrote this, friends, the world was a very different place than today. Doctors were actually recommending cigars to their patients. You know, now we have the Surgeon General saying, you know, this could cause cancer, all that. So um, I'm not trying to condemn anyone if, if this is something that, that you're struggling with. But this is this is what she said long before scientific research ever got to that point. And that was back in the late, to mid-1800s. But Ellen White wrote that tobacco was a malignant poison, like I said, long before the science ever said so. So today, we we know that smoking causes cancer and a host of other uh, diseases. No researcher would argue with Ellen White's claims on this point. Ellen White also um, wrote that when a baby is in the womb of its mother, the attitude of the mother and the things that the mother eats and everything it, it influences and it affects the child's physical and mental health. Ellen White also wrote about the rise of the occult. She wrote about spiritualism, and she predicted that there would be an explosion of spiritualism uh, and interest in communication with the dead in the last days. And we see clearly that this is on the rise. She made this prediction at a time when Americans had very little interest in such things. America was very, pretty much very spiritual back then. Um, And these, these predictions, I believe, have come true. They're very accurate. What about biblical faithfulness? What did Ellen White herself say? Well, if you want to evaluate someone's writings, you go to their writings and check it out. You don't have to go to some other place, some other source, some other webpage by their critics who, who take things out of context and do not give an accurate description. I certainly would not want someone to criticize me based on what someone else says about me. I would rather have them get to know me, hear what I have to say, hear what I believe, rather than going to someone else to to hear what I believe. So if you ask Ellen White what she believed about the Bible, what would she say? Well, this is what she wrote in the Great Controversy. She said, in our time, there is a wide departure from their doctrines and precepts. And there is need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and duty. Friends, can you agree with that statement today? There is a need for us to return to the Bible and the Bible only. Sola Scriptura, which is what the Protestant Reformation was advocating, that we need to return back to God's word. Now, let me be clear, friends. Seventh-day Adventists do not believe that Ellen White's writings in any way take the place of the Bible. I want to make that very clear. They do, we do not believe that her writings are another Bible. It's not like that. They're, but we, we are encouraged in God's word to test the spirits, the Bible says, to test Ellen White out and see if she meets the tests of a true prophet. Thirdly, the true gift of prophecy exalts Jesus. What about Ellen White? Did she exalt Jesus in her ministry and in her writings? Well, let's see what she says herself about Jesus in the book Gospel Workers, which was a book she wrote to ministers and other people that were involved in Christian ministry. She says, lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon and song and prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls confused, bewildered, lost. To who? to the Lamb of God. Not to herself. She wasn't wanting any attention, friends. She, she really didn't even want to have to do this, but God laid this burden on her, and she wanted to point people to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Ellen White's writings are filled with an emphasis on Jesus. She points out again and again that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. She wrote the Desire of Ages on the life of Christ. She wrote the book Christ Object Lessons on the parables of Christ. She wrote the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, which is on the teachings of Christ, uh, his Sermon on the Mount, and she also wrote the book Steps to Christ, which is one of my personal favorites on how to get to know Jesus for yourself. Excellent book. Somebody said that the proof is in the pudding. In the the proof that sorry, proof of the pudding is in the eating. Rather than read the critics, get one, of these, get one of these books, The Desire of Ages. We'll have some of them available afterwards. And prayerfully read it and see if it is in harmony with the Bible. If it's not, throw it away. Burn it. I don't, I don't care. If you, you know, But I believe that as you read it, you will see that it is in harmony with God's Word. See if it brings you closer to Jesus. Several years ago, the Barna Group, a Christian research group, um, non-denominational conducted a survey among pastors of different denominations to find out books and authors that that influenced them in their ministry, and here's what they found. They said the under forty pastors championed several authors who were ranked not ranked highly by older church leaders. These authors included business consultant James Collins, a seminary professor Tom Rainier, 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White, and Pastor John Ortberg. I thought this was very interesting that, that Ellen White was hev- being heavily read by young, younger pastors ages 40 and younger in all denominations. This right here, this picture, is a picture of the Library of Congress. It has more books. Uh, in that library than any other place in the United States. One day, a popular Protestant minister went to the Library of Congress. And he asked the librarian there, he said, what's your most outstanding book on the life of Christ in all of the Library of Congress? And here's what the librarian said at the Library of Congress. He said, my preference or choice would be guided by what I wish to get from the book or books to be read. But let me put it this way. I would put The Desire of Ages by Ellen White first for spiritual discernment and practical application. Ellen White fulfills the biblical test. Her writings exalt Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this leads us to the fourth test of a true prophet. At a time of rebellion, the biblical prophets led God's people back to commandment keeping. The prophets did not manufacture something that was not in the bible they did not contradict the prophets that had gone before them they were in harmony and ellen white leads us back to the bible and back to the keeping of the commandments she exalts the law of god and points out the significance of the seventh day sabbath she urges people to study god's word i and many others have found that ellen white meets the test of accuracy her writings meet the test of biblical faithfulness they exalt jesus they lead people back to commandment keeping what about the spiritual fruitage test what is the spiritual fruitage of her ministry has god blessed her ministry well ellen white wrote a book called education and in it she said that seventh day Adventists should establish schools all around the world so that young people could be trained up to be missionaries and share the gospel with others and what is the result of that council Well, our church now has the largest Protestant educational system in the entire world, second to none. According to the church's education department website, over 1.8 million students attend over 7,792 schools, colleges, and universities all around the world. Our church is a worldwide church. What is the spiritual fruitage? Well, there's universities like Loma Linda University, which, is, which has one of the most prestigious medical uh, clinics in the world. Uh, also, Ellen White, uh, she helped pick out this site um, in the 1800s. She was also one of the pioneers that helped to start Loma Linda. Florida Hospital is also another well-known hospital in the Avenist network, the Avenist denomination. It's well known for its blend of scientific expertise as well as Christian compassion. As a result of Ellen White's counsel given by God, we now have hospitals all around the world that are giving the ministry of healing to people. Ellen White's writings do not deal with bizarre events or wide-eyed fanaticism. They have changed the world for the better. These these are visions and dreams to guide God's people so that the church can move forward around the world, that they can move forward in faith. Seventh-day Adventists today have a modern missionary movement that spans the globe. J.N. Andrews was our first Seventh-day Adventist missionary. He was sent out from the United States to the country of Switzerland because early Adventist leaders believed that we needed to reach the world for Christ, that we had a special message, the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. J.N. Andrews left in the, in the late 1800s, and as a result of the missionary, he was encouraged by Ellen White to go. And as a result of this missionary movement, Seventh-day Adventists have been established established work in 215 out of 227 countries that the United Nations recognizes. That is, a, it's a worldwide movement, friends. Today, Seventh-day Adventists have more work in more countries than any other Protestant denomination in the globe. God has blessed incredibly. Friends, when people are honest, when people are genuinely searching, God guides them. Amen? Amen. We looked at a verse last night in, in Jeremiah that says, when you, you will, if you seek me and, and search for me with all of your hearts, you will find me. And so I encourage each one of us to continue searching, continue searching God's word. Uh, grab some of her books, read them, see if, it, see if they line up, see if she meets the test and decide for yourself, friends. You will realize as you read, though, that the, that the gift of prophecy never was given to replace the Bible, not to take the place of Jesus in any way, friends, but it was given as a special gift by God himself to guide and direct his people, to help them know Jesus better, to help them understand their Bibles better. I'm thankful, friends, that God still guides his church, that God still guides his people in these last days. How about you? Amen. May God help us to be faithful to him, and may he continue to guide us in our journey of faith as we seek to live for him each day. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We want to thank you, Father, that you have uh, made things in your word so clear, Lord, that this is one of the identifying uh, characteristics, Lord, of your end-time people. And Lord, I pray for those that are hearing this message for the first time, Lord, that may have a lot of questions. That's okay, Father. I pray that you would guide them, that you would give us understanding, Father, that we would truly check these things out for ourselves, Lord, that no one would believe anything just because I said it, Father, but that they would see it from your word, Lord. And uh, we pray, Lord, that um, that you would protect us in these last days, Lord. You've said in your word that there will be false prophets, there will be um, False prophets, so many of them, Father, and we do not want to be deceived. So we pray, Lord, for your guidance in our lives. Bless each one of us, Lord, as we seek to live for you. Help us to walk the narrow way, Lord. Help us to not be distracted by the cares of this world, but help us to put you first in all of our ways. It's our prayer, and we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.